Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our Ontario political roundup with John Best, the founder of the Bay Observer. U.S. President Joe Biden is taking a step that he says could provide Americans nearly immediate relief at the gas pumps. We'll talk about that. Pope Francis has finally come out and apologized for the harm caused by Canadian residential schools. Is that enough? And how much could the government's new pharmacare and dental promises cost? It's a big number. We'll talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's look at what's going on at Queen's Park. We do know, of course, that there is a provincial election coming up uh, in the first week of June, and the uh, the politicking and the campaigning has already started. Not officially, of course, but a lot of news and a lot of announcements coming out of Queen's Park over the last little while. In spite of the fact that we see increasing numbers of COVID cases once again with this uh, latest variant, uh, Ontario's health minister says the province is not looking at bringing back any COVID-19 measures anytime soon. Emily Javesky has the details. The trends emerged after Ontario lifted indoor masking rules in most places, along with most other measures aimed at limiting the spread of COVID-19, like proof of vaccination rules and crowd capacity limits. Christine Elliott says the rise in cases is not unexpected, and the government's following the advice of the province's top doctor. Opposition politicians are calling on the province to explain how it plans to respond to the rising cases. NDP leader Andrea Horvath says the, quote, complete silence from the government and chief medical officer of health is disconcerting. Emily Javesky, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Interesting topic about that, and especially the government's reaction to this. And uh, we uh, heard uh, the other day from uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, of course, on the program talking about this. And he said, look, if you're going to wait for hospitalization numbers to increase, it's too late by the time you look at those numbers. It's going on now. It's happening now. So what is the government doing and how are they responding to this? Well, that's one of the things we're going to talk about with our next guest. John Best is the founder and publisher of the Bay Observer uh, following uh, provincial politics. And he joins us for our weekly session here on the Bill Kelly Show. John, uh, welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us again today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Bill. John, let me just jump in right off the bat on this the, the COVID thing. We, I, I get more and more I, uh, an idea here that a lot of people that just seem to have the sense that it's over, it's in our rearview mirror, it's not happening anymore. The numbers are increasing again. The medical experts, notwithstanding what our chief medical officer seems to be saying, uh, but people like Dr. Uni and Dr. Bolgosh and a number of others are saying, look, this is happening, people. We need to do something about this. Is the, is the government trying to whistle past the graveyard here? Well, I, I think they've taken a, a quite a gamble, Bill, in uh, lifting the, uh, the mandates as they did on the, on the 21st of March. Um, this is a real uh, toss of the dice, I think, uh, for this government. We're five weeks away from being into an election campaign. And if uh, these current trends uh, should worsen in any significant way, it's, it's going to be a, a much tighter election than the polls are suggesting right now. So, I mean, the government is kind of out there um, a little bit on this, uh, this COVID response, although you know, to be honest, we're, we're looking at a province that's 90% vaccinated. I don't think there's a single state in the United States that's anywhere near that. You know, you look at Florida, uh, which is not a great example in many ways with the, some of the stuff their governor has done. But you, you really do wonder um, if it makes any difference at all, quite frankly, uh, whether whether we have, uh, you know, mask mandates or, or not. It, it, you know, I think the public is thoroughly confused at this point. I mean, uh, the premier is right when he says that Ontario is probably the most vaccinated jurisdiction in probably North America, maybe the world. 
and uh, and yet uh, they lift the mandates. Uh, what was it? Almost not quite two weeks ago, and mm-hmm. these hospital numbers are starting to creep up, and the the daily counts are starting to creep up. I guess I guess the only good news, Bill, is that the ICU cases are really uh, not moved hardly at all, and, and I think that's partly what the government is clinging to. Yeah, but as Dr. Bogosh told us the other day, uh, he says those those numbers are uh, th- those are, are, are kind of like post uh, pandemic. He says by the time those numbers are there, uh, it's too late to 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 be preventative. You now you're being reactive, and I, it's it's a, I think a valid point. We've seen this happen before. Uh, and he and a number of other medical experts I've talked to over the last couple of weeks now, John, since the mandate was lifted, are simply saying this was a political decision. It had nothing at all to do with science. And that's not really the way they should be making decisions about something as important as this. Well, um, he's he's probably right. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't think uh, the, the flip side would apply, that if the government had continued the, the mandate, so there, there clearly was a, a public fatigue and it's... Uh, it's a juggling act, uh, trying to balance, uh, you know, the science, as they say. Uh, I guess what it comes down to is uh, you either believe that uh, Dr. Kieran Moore is is providing independent advice or you don't believe him. Uh, he's going along with this. Uh, Dr. Bogosh, uh, God bless him. He's uh, very photogenic and great guy to great interview. But, yeah. you know, he's he's been all over this issue. Uh, so I, I, I don't know what you do other than we, we have a, a medical officer of health. And uh, at this point, at least, he's saying we don't need to take extra measures. Um, and, and I think the other thing that we are seeing, and, and this is somewhat anecdotal, but the people that are getting sick are, are not staying sick as long. Um, the severity's uh, not there. Uh, a close uh, relative of mine came down with COVID. Um, he's a teacher. And uh, what he tells me, I said, well, what's the protocol for you going back to work? And he said, well, it'll, it'll be five days and uh, I'll, I'll go back. And, and, you know, far cry from all this invasive testing and all of that that we, that we heard about before. So, you know, I think we've been living with this thing for two years. We've received a lot of conflicting advice. And the truth is, I don't think any of us really know what the hell's going on. Yeah, and that could include some of our elected officials, I suppose, too. In a related issue, though, John, news this week, and it was kind of under the radar with all the other things that have been happening, of course, is the province has announced that the uh, the science advisory table, that's the one that was, of course, headed by Dr. Uni, who, by the way, is leaving and going over to the UK. That, that's, I, I think, a story in and of itself. They're going to fold the science advisory table into Public Health Ontario, which basically means it's going to become a government agency. Uh, so, so much for independence, so much for free thinking in this uh, is... is what, what do you read into this? Is this basically a way for them to simply say, we'll control the message? We don't want any any contrary voices out there? Well, that's certainly, you know, when you do something like that, that's exactly the impression you create. I don't know why they would do that at this time. You're, you're heading into an election. Why would you, um, what was the urgency to do it now? Um, it, it, it opens that very question, Bill. Uh, are, are they trying to politicize the science? I don't think they are, but uh, why would you make a move like that? Uh, it, surely it isn't a money issue, or at least let's hope it's not. Uh, you know, uh, it, 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 those are the kind of things that really get the public questioning uh, unnecessarily. 
to you know, if I was giving PR advice, I, I would say if you're going to do it, do it some other time. Um, they they haven't really explained why they they've made that administrative move. So uh, to me, that's a little bit of a, a forced, an unforced error. Uh, Could have well waited until some other time this year. I'm I'm sure somebody's got a reason for it, but. It, I think it's one of these situations where it might have actually been a bureaucratic decision, and sometimes they seem to be oblivious to the political realities that are going on around them. You know, with an election eight weeks away, is this the time to create that kind of question in in the public's mind? Well, and that's the concern that I've got about this, and you and I have been following politics for a long time, uh, and we've seen these sorts of machinations in the past, Uh, and and I'm, I'm trying to you know, contrast that with, with what actually has happened, as you mentioned, over the last two years while well, this pandemic is on. God bless the province because they're the ones that struck the science table in the first place and said we need all the experts here. And they got around the table and they appointed Dr. Uni for the job. It's Dr. Steiny Brown, of course, I think he was the one who picked him. But they were an independent voice. And, you know, about a year ago, Dr. Uni was ready to quit, he, you know, because he said, you're not following my advice. What am I even here for? I, he changed his mind. I think they finally talked him off of the ledge. But uh, now he is leaving as as and I'm sure there's a more of a story to that. But you fold it into the ministry, and all of a sudden, well, that, that means Doug Ford's your boss. Uh, you don't have a free opinion on this. And and God bless the people that have been the chief medical. We've had a couple of them, uh, you know, since uh, this whole thing started. But they're being paid by the government. And and I've, I've been around long enough, and you have enough, too, that don't tell me that governments don't have influence over what these people say when they're, you know, working under under this this sort of pressure. We know that a lot of the decisions the Ford government made over the last two years vis-a-vis the pandemic had political overtones. And, and I'm wondering if this does, too. Well, it does because we're talking about it in a, in a political program. Yeah. Uh, so absolutely, uh, it raises uh, political questions. Whether it's as nefarious as uh, the opposition parties think it is, uh, that's a whole other issue. But uh, certainly, uh, once again, uh, it's... a uh, it's this whole communications issue where if you're going to do something, uh, let's have a fulsome explanation of why you're doing it. Uh, you know, the, the steps that you took, the information you received that led you to this conclusion. Why is it going to be better uh, than it was before? So, you know, those are all issues uh, in, in Paul. It amazes me, frankly, with all these communications advisors they have, a, and I've, I've written about Hamilton with 15 communications advisors, and we still get some some really bizarre uh, decisions taken. But but here we go again. Um, you know, I, I I would imagine that there's thousands of people working for the Ontario government that are supposed to be there to provide communications advice, and and you get something like this uh, uh, a month and a bit uh, from the dropping of a, an election writ. I know you've been studying the uh, proposal that came out earlier this week from the Ford government, too, about their housing strategy. And it's a crisis. I mean, that's the word I've used, and I think it's very appropriate given what, what's going on. There are people that, that don't have a home. There are a lot of people that can't afford to even put a down payment down on a house. And they've come up with a plan, which I've, I'm sure, Doug, John, is going to be one of the key planks of their, their platform as they move forward to this election that you were just talking about in June. What's your read on this? I mean, I, I, I talked about this yesterday, and I got a lot of feedback from people that saying it's a Toronto-centric policy. A lot of the stuff they're trying to do here doesn't relate to Hamilton or London or Ottawa or anyplace else except for Metro. And I, I said, well, the re- reality is there's a lot of votes in Metro Toronto in the GTA, and there's an election coming up. So that, I wasn't surprised at all by that. Well, um, if, 
it was this was supposed to be this policy that was announced uh, was supposed to be a response to that housing task force that released its uh, report. That was a private sector driven task force, and they they called for much more um, aggressive uh, measures than the province has actually taken. And Steve Clark, the minister, uh, he admitted he said, "Look, we." Uh, uh, we we had to water down the legislation because uh, we were just getting so much pushback from municipalities. Um, what the task force had recommended was essentially uh, a gutting of planning at the local level. Uh, so if a if a municipality uh, put a restriction on uh, boundary expansion or uh, dragged its feet on approving um, condo uh, developments. Uh, that there'd be almost a fast tracking of it through the uh, Ontario Land Tribunal. Essentially, what it would mean is that even more than now, which is, is you know, frequent, uh, that uh, municipalities would simply be overruled uh, by the Ontario Land tri Tribunal. Clark, uh, if you really, you know, I read the measures that they announced and, and you know, other than this increased tax on foreign speculators, which only represents a tiny, tiny percentage of, of the housing sales in Ontario. And it, it's not going to move the needle uh, hardly at all. Uh, the rest of it is uh, kind of vague, kind of wishy-washy. And uh, I guess uh, they must have thought that they didn't want to go into an election with all the municipalities yelling at them. So uh, I, I just think it's a weak piece of legislation and it isn't going to accomplish very much. I, I would expect to see a toughen after the election uh, if this government is returned. You know what it reminded me of, though? I know we're just about out of time here. Was that, you remember the, in the, the late 90s, the Mike Harris government instituted a call the Who Does What panel. And it was all these you know municipal experts uh, and politicians giving their suggestions on how you know the relationship between the cities and, and the province should be. And there's like, I think they had 40 or 50 recommendations. They picked two or three of them. And the rest of them, they just, yeah, yeah. But you guys probably, and, and one of them, by the way, was regional government. How'd that go over? So I guess that's the right of government, I guess, to be able to cherry pick and say, yeah, this one fits what we want to do. So we're going to pick that one. The rest of them will just put in the blue box here. Well, it's um, it, the, the phenomenon. Uh, we go back to that article that uh, the, the Jim Balsilli, the former BlackBerry executive, wrote about a month and a half ago. We don't have uh, the kind of civil service that we had uh, 40 or 50 years ago. Um, essentially, the civil service, uh, they're managing consultant contracts. Uh, you don't have people that, um, that actually develop policy the way it used to be done. And, and the result is uh, we get these, these kind of half-assed uh, decisions. Uh, we get the, you know, let's throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what we can do. The, the whole process is becoming less and less professional and th that should be of, of concern, but nobody's gonna campaign on, on fixing the internal mechanism of government because people's eyes glaze over and yet it, it's really an important issue. It is, really. Uh, we have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Uh, John, as always, thanks so much for jumping in with us today for a, uh, a recount. Uh, lots more to talk about provincially, of course, with the election coming up. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. John Best, the founder and publisher of The Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the United States is uh, looking to alleviate some of the pressure on uh, the global oil market. 
Uh, gas prices, of course, uh, they've gone up again today, uh, but same thing's happening down in the States. Given the Russian invasion of Ukraine right now, we know that's one of the major problems. And uh, the United States thinks they might have a solution to this. Uh, Global's Kyle Benning has the latest. Joe Biden says the U.S. will release one million barrels of oil from its reserves every day for six months as companies attempt to ramp up production. The president looking for that boost to help fill the demand of those one million barrels by the fall. It's time to step up for the good of your country, the good of the world, to invest in immediate production that we need to respond to Vladimir Putin. Biden isn't sure how large of a factor this will have on prices at the pumps and says he's looking to allies to see if they take similar action. On average, the U.S. consumes about 21 million barrels daily. Kyle Benning, Global News. So uh, is this going to be an effective tool to try to curtail the uh, ridiculous uh, price that we're paying at the pumps these days? I want to bring Elliot Tepper into the conversation. Elliot, of course, is an emeritus professor in political science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, great to have you back on the show today. Are you surprised by the president's announcement? Uh, Well, it's a logical announcement because all governments around the world are now dealing with the inflation and and energy crunch uh, linked to the Ukraine crisis and Russia's actions. So it's a logical thing to do. It's a million barrels a day added, but it's primarily, remember, to help the domestic audience. That is, it's intended to alleviate the situation of the pain at the pumps in America. So the, uh, it, it is a logical step. It's only one step. He's also gone around the world with very limited results, trying to get Venezuela. And this is like an authoritarian's rescue plan. He's gone to he's gone to Venezuela. He's, Iran is now um, you know if you only please sign our our nuclear deal so you can get your mil, your million barrels a day of oil back on. He's gone to the Middle East, uh, and some of the countries there won't answer his phone calls. OPEC has just said, no, we're not going to do much. We were going to increase our production a bit, but uh, no, we're not going to drastically increase it. So the the immediate situation is that uh, anybody that sells oil, and that includes us, who has oil production, is making more money, and there's no incentive for them to change that behavior. I I, I, I agree with your point, by the way, that this is really for the domestic audience because he's taking a lot of heat for this right now. I mean, you know, you, you pull up to an Amico station down in the States here and you get you, you yell at the president, uh, but he made it quite clear. He says uh, that family budgets in America should not hinge on whether or not a dictator wants to declare war. So yes. he's putting this right on Putin's lap, isn't he? Yes, and, and uh, don't blame me, blame Putin. It's, yeah. it's, it's one of his um, snappier phrases. He's not a great orator. So this, this does, attend, you know, try to bring it home. But we do also have the situation that everything he's doing and everything the world is doing is to sustain the use of fossil fuels. So buried away, and this didn't get any attention at all, as near as I can tell, hardly any, uh, buried away in that same announcement at the, when he was, the, the announcement to, that you just quoted, is this. The White House also plans to invoke the Defense Production Act that's a very radical step. The, the U.S. government will step in to secure materials necessary for clean energy with the aim to break dependence on foreign sources of oil and natural gas. Now, what, that's, what this means is that uh, the U.S. is, and I think Canada is doing the same, other countries around the world are doing the same with the democracy, saying we are still committed to our, plan, climate, plan, uh, uh, our climate plans. We plan to meet our, our emissions goals. This entire crisis that we see right now, today, in front of us, 
will have the logical effect, and the announcement by the White House is going to boost that along, of trying to get us off fossil fuels. So the tendency that was already there is going to be accelerated now that we see the, the damage that's being done by staying on fossil fuels uh, geopolitically. But that's an interesting twist on this, because I know that in the Congress right now, uh, both the Senate and the Congress, I guess, the Republicans are trying to put a lot of pressure on the president right now to say, hey, look at that Keystone pipeline you canceled. You better think that over again and, and other things. And of course, there's also a Biden policy that basically uh, is not allowing any further drilling permits on federal lands. Uh, they want him to rescind that, too. And he's basically, I guess, like responding, and responding to it and saying, no, 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 we're not going that way. We're going to ramp up what we wanted to do about getting off fossil fuels. Well, he's also has something called use it or lose it in the same announcement. There's a lot of energy uh, contracts under, under you know, the vast swaths of territory have been put under potential drilling by energy companies, and they're not, they're not drilling. And he's saying, okay, you say you want to make money off energy, you know, off oil and gas, get at it. You're not... Uh, you're not producing, and of course, the energy companies are saying, "Oh, it takes a long time. You can't just turn these taps." And besides which, <clears throat> we're making a lot of money by reducing yeah. the supply or not increasing it. So why should we? And he's saying, "If you do not, and this is a presidential directive, if you do not make use of the existing lands you have, never mind what the Republicans are saying. This is their standing, their standing uh, position. The Republicans are well, climate. What climate? Uh, we." We get a lot of money from the oil companies for our campaign. So this is a standing position by the Republicans. But the Democrats are now saying that, as the president's now saying, there's ways to ramp up production that aren't being used, and we're going to find a way to do that as well. Well, we kind of found that out over the last couple of years, didn't we, when they started looking at campaign financing and uh, the Mitch McConnells and the Ted Cruz's and uh, the Lindsey Graham's. Uh, uh, it's surprising to see how, how much money these guys actually rake in every year for, for their own personal campaigns uh, from big oil. Yes, and Joe Manchin for big coal. So, yeah, exactly. While we're at it. <laughs> so uh, some of them are still living in the 19th century, I guess, but they're profiting from it. But the reality is uh, we are caught in the present while planning for the future. At the present, we are looking now to natural gas, not oil, as an intermediate uh, transitional fuel source because it's better for the economy than oil. But I'm afraid that in terms of XL and all, the environmental lobby in the U.S. has branded Canadian oil as dirty oil. So we yeah. end up saying to Venezuela <laughs> and Iran, please pr produce more instead. It's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, you talk about that old phrase, that cliche now, but, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. And you didn't think that the uh, Biden administration would be reaching out to those countries, but that's the reality. Elliot, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for jumping in with us today. I really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again. Is, yes, is, there's going to be another element to the story. We'll talk oh, about there's many, the next couple of there's days. many. We haven't talked about rubles at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get into that next time. Thanks, Elliot. All righty. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, from Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, week is wrapping up, of course, in the Vatican uh, with a, a number of different groups, of course, Métis, uh, in Indigenous and Inuit folks at the Vatican after meeting uh, for a long, long time now with uh, Pope Francis. And uh, today, uh, well, a bit of a surprise for some people, Pope Francis has apologized for the Roman Catholic Church's role in residential schools, speaking through a translator 
Pontiff says he feels sorrow and shame for the role that a number of Catholics played in the abuses suffered by Canada's Indigenous communities. He made that apology earlier this morning uh, in the final meeting with that group. Uh, here's a little bit of what the Pontiff had to say. For the deplorable conduct of these members of the Catholic Church. I ask for God's forgiveness, and I want to say to you with all my heart, I am very sorry. So, uh, as I say, a bit of a surprise uh, because there was some concern and some speculation as to just how this whole whole session was going to work out. Uh, it was very passionate, very uh, emotional time, of course, for a number of these groups to actually have a face-to-face with the Pope and uh, tell their stories. And, and as we've mentioned before, and I know that Indigenous leaders talked to us about this many, many times uh, before this meeting was even arranged, those stories had to be told and need to be told on a consistent basis. Uh, we mentioned on the program yesterday about uh, former Assembly of First Nations Chief uh, Phil Fontaine, who is he's over there. He's one of the delegates uh, who is addressing the pontiff and talking to the pontiff. Uh, not for the first time, because he did pretty much the same sort of thing to Pope Benedict some years ago. I didn't get much in the way of results, of course, as we know. But he felt better about it this time and thought that, yeah, something something's going to come of this. And uh, I'm sure that there are some pretty positive feelings uh, about that apology now, because uh, they were hoping that was going to be part of the, the situation and, and the result of all these meetings that they were going to have with the Pope. And, of course, with that came a, a commitment from the Pope as well uh, that he is going to visit Canada and uh, and actually go probably, we don't know the itinerary certainly at this point, but he did talk about the fact that if when he makes that trip over to Canada, which is probably going to be sometime in 2023, he's going to go to some of these sites and and, and talk with some of the survivors as he did uh, when he had them over at the Vatican uh, through the course of the week here. So a positive message and, and I think something that, that we, they were looking forward to at this stage uh, to make sure that we got that kind of response and, uh, and there was going to be some commitments. And, you know, it's... It's not a matter of culpability. It's a matter of acknowledging uh, that something was done, and, and there has to be some atonement for that. I want to bring Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Harvard, of course, is the director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University to get uh, some reaction from this. Uh, doctor, pleasure to have you back on the show. Uh, were you surprised by the announcement this morning from the pontiff? I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, I, I think this was something that everybody had come out of here saying that they had to do this. I mean, if the whole foundation was going to be thrown into question, if the announcement wasn't made this morning, and there's, you know, I think the eyes, not just in Canada of Indigenous people, but all Canadians, and in fact, around the world, I think everybody's watching them, and, and they realize that the time has come, that they have to, they have to own this. The, you know, that apology came forward, and I think, I think it's really critical that they do understand that you can't just apologize to a small handful that attended in Rome, but that, you know, they actually have to come here and personally address on Canadian soil all those many, many survivors. You raise a very interesting point here, and I think we need to get that perspective, don't we? For anybody who thinks, well, this is just a group of Indigenous people that went over there because they're concerned about what happened in BC or maybe in Brantford, Ontario, or other places, this is a global story. And, and you're right, the world is watching to see what the Pope was going to do about this. Well, and I think because the world is also looking at the fact that, you know, they have apologized for what happened, you know, in the in Ireland. They have apologized in other contexts. And to continue to refuse to apologize to Indigenous people up until this point has been a real black mark. And so this is really, really critical that the whole world is watching this. But as we've also said, there is also a lot of demand that it's not 
be just an apology. That, you know, the foundation of the Catholic Church is that, you know, you come forward and you own, and there needs to be that atonement. And it's not just saying 45 Hail Marys or the Rosary. It really needs to be about making right, and even though it, it can never really be made right, but trying to trying to help restore the culture, trying to help, you know, restore the language, trying to, to, to help restore what they tried to destroy. And, and to that point, it's, this is not over. I mean, I, I, as I listened to it, of course, I threw the translator. I was touched by, I think, the sincerity of what he was saying. You know, he said, you know, all of the, of course, the sessions that he had through the week, the various uh, folks from different, uh, the Métis and the, and the Aboriginal groups, said it made me feel two things very strongly, the Pope said, indignation and shame which I thought was pretty strong language and I think very effective language. But this is, this is part one of what has to be a multi-part uh, uh, reason for, and, and I think, uh, explanation for atonement, isn't it? I mean, as you say, there has to be some form of reparation. There has to be some acknowledgement of what went on. And there's a lot more. I mean, the, the other ask here was give us more information. You know, you have the records. What happened? Who did this? Where are, where are our children? And that's exactly it. You know, from that atonement, if, if we have, gen- if, if those words of indignation and shame mean anything, you know, this indignation that this happened, then they have to provide those records to really start, you know, giving some closure to the people who have don't know what happened to their families. And you know, that's one of the things I found surprised. Initially, I was a bit upset when he said that he was asking for God's forgiveness. And my first thought was, no, you need to be asking for forgiveness of those survivors, of those people, of those families. He did get to that, so I was really pleased with that because uh, that really shows an understanding that this is this is about the people that were wronged. So, And that's why it's so important that he's made that commitment to come to Canada and really address in person all of those survivors that were wronged as well as asking for forgiveness from God. Is there going to be an ongoing dialogue, do you think, Doctor, about this? I mean, you know, it, I, I agree. I think it's great that he made the commitment to come to Canada probably next year, we're told. And we don't know what the agenda is going to be. I assume it's going to include some visitations to some of these sites. Uh, but there has to be more into the conversation here, as you say, with reparation, with uh, acknowledging that, and, and not just acknowledging that it happened, but uh, that they have a responsibility going forward. Uh, you know, we're, the the federal government is starting to get in that direction, although they seem to be taking baby steps. Uh, you'd like to think the church can go in the same direction as well. Well, and we're certainly hoping that they're going to be going in that direction. And I think, you know, once people realized, you know, with, with finding of mass graves, you know, unmarked graves of children, this goes from being just a sort of what many people could have dismissed as, you know, well, it was at the time and... You know, there was disease and there was, you know, all of these sort of excuses for what happened. But I think those unmarked graves became, that was a real turning point where nobody can look at that anymore and say that, well, it was something that was well-intentioned and and just, you know, didn't have the outcome. No, no, unmarked graves are never something that was well-intentioned. That's never, you know, just an unpleasant side effect. And I think in this context, you know, when they come to Canada, they are just like this visit today where we said, you know, we were hopeful that they were going to be coming out with that apology because they had to know that that was the expectation. And I truly believe that the Pope knows that when he is coming to Canada, that he has to know what that expectation is and that he will be well prepared to offer that apology to people as well as offer the beginnings of being a partner of those reparations of trying to restore the language and the culture and, and help rebuild those families and, and start creating opportunities for healing, which 
as you said, is ongoing. You can't, you know, have healing a healing pro- a two year healing program that's going to undo generations of of damage in the residential schools. And I had the same concerns, by the way, and some trepidation you know, before the announcement was even made about the apology, because we've heard some of the quote-unquote explanations from, from the Catholic Church previously, like, oh, we didn't know what we were doing, and we had the best of intentions. And I'm, I was very happy to see that the Pope did not take that tone and you know, try to make excuses for that. And, and I think that's that's a good first step, too. Uh, more to come on this, certainly, as uh, we find out exactly what's going to be happening next year with this visit and, and exactly how they're going to address some of these concerns. Uh, as always, Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take care. Take care. Dr. Don Laval, Harvard, of course, at Trent University, talking about the, the Pope's apology to Indigenous groups. And as we say, that's a first step, not the final step, we hope, in uh, this process. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, we know the federal budget is uh, going to be brought down and uh, delivered uh, next Thursday in the uh, House of Commons by Finance Minister Christian Freeland. Two of the things we can expect uh, to get some details on are, uh, well, the two big plans, a new pharma care program, an enhanced pharma care program for some provinces, and dental care costs. But we want to get a price tag on these, and uh, we're told that it's going to be a significant number. Uh, I want to bring our next guest in to talk about this. Colleen Fuller is a health and drug policy researcher uh, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Colleen, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could be with us today. Good morning, Hamilton. And good morning to you. Uh, I'm looking at some of the estimates I've seen over the last couple of days since uh, the the finance minister mentioned that these are going to be included in this. Uh, it's uh, it's not going to be cheap, is it? Uh, but is it going to be effective? I and mean, we're talking billions of dollars here, aren't we? Well, we're talking about um, an, an initial outlay of billions of dollars, but we're also talking about billions of dollars in savings if a national pharmacare plan is established. The problem from my perspective right now is well, I guess it's not a problem, but a question is how committed the Liberals are to moving forward. This is an agreement that has been, you know, all over the headlines and so forth between the Liberals and the NDP. But the Liberals have been this close before to implementing National Pharmacare, and they've always backed away from it. So I'm, I'm not uh, sure what to expect next week. Is, is it the price tag, do you think, that, that made them kind of back away and say, well, maybe you know, sometime down the road, but just not now? And, I mean, clearly they're in a minority situation right now, and I, I'm, I'm guessing this was a deal-breaker with the, the NDP if they said, you don't put this in, you're not getting our help. Um, yes, well, that's what I would expect the NDP, you know, um, in, I think it was in 2020, tabled a backbenchers bill, you know, to implement national pharmacare, and of course it was defeated by the liberals and conservatives. But uh, I think that the, it's not so much the cost that is, you know, intimidating the liberals. I mean, they've spent a lot of money over the last several years, as we know, on relief for people who are, con- who are not able to go to work because of COVID. And they've yeah. spent a lot of money, and they haven't had any problems doing that. When the liberals were first elected in 2015, they, you know, basically didn't care if, if their campaign commitments resulted in an increase in the deficit. They were committed to a progressive, you know, agenda. The problem is that the pharmaceutical industry is so entrenched and so opposed to national pharmacare, to, to controls over the price of drugs and so forth and so on. And really, I think that's what is, is the uh, problem here. 
Uh, and this is timely. I, I know people are going to, especially in some you know, small C conservative circles, are going to say, well, well, it's not really necessary. It is. Uh, the numbers I've seen on this indicate that about 18%, I guess, of Canadians uh, avoid going to the dentist because they can't afford it. I mean, if you've got a dental plan, God bless you. you maybe you don't even yeah. see those numbers. Uh, yeah. But it's significant. And, and we also know, of course, that you know, if you ignore dental problems, uh, there can be significant mental health problems and, and, of course, physical problems, too. It's not just, oh, I might have a sore tooth. There can be blood infections that can be impact the brain. There's a number of things that can go on. This is an essential part of health, isn't it? Oh, it really is. I, you know, I'm the president of a community health center in Vancouver, and we have a dental clinic at, at our CHC. And, you know, a really significant percentage of the dental clients are subsidized by our community health center. And this is a, you know, a strain on our budget. But it, um, these are the people who are subsidized are, are people who may be on social assistance, so they're supposedly getting support from the province to access dental care. And the fees that the province pays are way, way, way below what, what is negotiated by the dental association. The people who are on who are indigenous and are supposedly subsidized by the federal government to access dental care are not adequately subsidized by the government. And people who don't have dental plans and who are poor also aren't, just simply aren't able to access dental care. And you're right, it is a major health problem for them. So we'll see what happens on Thursday, and of course we can do some follow-up uh, conversations about that. I want to pivot, if I could, for a couple of seconds here, Colleen, because I I read a piece that you, uh, that you uh, authored that's uh, on healthydebate.ca. People can go to the webpage and, and read it for themselves. Uh, and it's about diabetes, which is a major concern in this country. I mean, for the people that have been diagnosed, and apparently we're told there are a lot of people that probably have diabetes that haven't been diagnosed yet, but you know that you're a type 1 diabetic, and you wrote a piece uh, that talks about it's a dilemma, I think, for an awful lot of people that are dealing with diabetes right now. Those who don't have it and, and maybe don't know anybody that does figure, well, thank God we've got insulin now. Everything's fine. It's not. And there's some major concerns here, aren't there? Yes, there are. The You know, people look at the cost of insulin in the United States, which is completely outrageous. It, it's unbelievable. But, you know, Canadians who aren't covered by extended health plans don't have secure access to insulin. This is shocking. Insulin was discovered in this country. It was available to Canadians at, uh, you know, really almost at the cost of production until about the mid-1980s or, or in 1970s, I would say, really. But, um, you know, if you don't, if you have, if you have type 1 diabetes, you have no choice. You either use insulin or or you will die. It's as simple as that. And if you can't afford it, that's a problem. There have been, there's uh, small organizations in Canada that represent people with type 1 diabetes, and they know that a lot of people are, are rationing their insulin. They're not taking the recommended dose because they can't afford it. This is ridiculous. And what they know and what I know is that a, a national pharmacare program will provide secure access to this life giving life-saving medicine and you know do you think about politicians sitting in ottawa looking at uh, weighing the pros and cons of a national pharmacare program and if the medicine is available in canada if people can't afford it it doesn't matter whether it's available or not they can't get it and a national pharmacare program will support that population and it's it's both it's a moral issue as well as a as a um, financial issue. 
Well, as you point out in the piece, too, uh, <laughs> a lot of this started, of course, back in the days of when Connaught Labs, uh, back in the 1980s, was privatized by the government. And I have no problem with people making money. I mean, you want to do that sort of thing, God bless you. But if you put profit ahead of public health, I, I got a concern about that. And that seems to be what's happening, as you mentioned, with uh, the three main uh, companies that are, are, are producing this stuff right now. Uh, the cost is off, off the charts right now for this. Yeah. And uh, and the government, I think they have a responsibility. I mean, they're the ones that decided to basically tell our, our you know, the labs and, and uh, the pharmaceutical industry in this country to go take a hike. And we saw what that did to COVID uh, because we had to go hat and hat cap in hand to other countries to, to try to get vaccines. The same thing's happening with insulin. And I'm, I'm so glad that yeah. you wrote the piece to bring this to, to everybody's attention. This is it's a, almost a crisis situation, isn't it? It is. And the, it is complete greed. I mean, the cost of manufacturing insulin has gone down when, uh, you know, biotechnology has enabled these companies to produce massive amounts of insulin. And the cost of producing a, a vial of insulin is about $5 on average. And this insulin is selling for $30 in Canada and $300 in the United States, if you can imagine. But in the rest of the world, people can't afford it at all. It, it's just too expensive. And so about half of the world's people who need insulin can't get it because it's either not supplied or they can't afford to buy it. And this is just an outrage. And Canada has played a negative role in this. We used to have a public manufacturer, um, as you said, and, and Connaught supplied Canadians with insulin at cost, but it also played a, a positive role internationally in helping to control the cost of insulin. And that company was unfortunately privatized in the mid-1980s. And so the I work with an organization that focuses on pharmaceutical policy, and we have really focused on national pharmacare for the last number of years, and we also have focused on price controls. And those two are very, very linked because if you have pri drug prices that are too expensive, it's, uh, it prevents governments from wanting to implement national pharmacare. That's one thing. But we also argue that we need that that drugs are like a three-legged stool. A good drug policy is like a three-legged stool. You have a national pharmacare program, you have good solid price controls, and you have a public manufacturer. And those three things can work together to assure Canadians that they have access to the medicine that they need without being gouged. Well, it's a an eye-opener. i gotta, I got to tell you, really, when I read this, Colleen, and, and I'm so glad, that first of all, that you wrote it. Uh, again, I'll direct people to, uh, to the webpage. Go to healthydebate.ca, and uh, you can read it for yourself. And, and here's hoping some of the folks in Ottawa can read this as well, can understand uh, just what sort of a circumstance that, uh, that has been created here because of this. And, I mean, we expect markups, I guess, but, I mean, you know, to produce it for 5 bucks a vial and selling it for 380 is criminal, I mean, to be able to do that. Yeah. And it's happening on a daily basis. Uh, exactly. Thank you so much for this. I, I just really wanted to get that message out here to folks and, and, and start a conversation about this. And I think your, your piece here is going to be a catalyst for that. So I'm glad well, we had a chance you. to talk about this. Thanks for sharing some time with us today. Thank you very much. And thank you for, the, um, for uh, reading the article. I can talk about insulin nonstop. So <laughs> you want to talk to me about it, call. <laughs> I sure will. Thanks again, Colleen. Take care. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Colleen Fuller, health and uh, drug policy researcher, calling us uh, from BC today. Getting up early to be on the program, but it's a very important subject. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.